Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Bay Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Don Watson in conversation with David Laser, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbayrightersfestival.com.au. His book, American Journeys, published in 2008, won the Age Book of the Year and Nonfiction Book of the Year Award and was featured as one of Newsweek magazine's 50 must-reads of the year. A remarkable feat for an Australian writing about America. His book, Death Sentence, published five years before that, was about the decay of public language and was described by a fellow author, one of our favourite sons, Robert Drew, as not just the book of the year, but the book of the era. His companion book to that, Death Sentence, Dictionary of uh, Weasel Words, published in 2005, was another brilliant and best-selling book, this one exploring the manipulation of language by those in power. Well, today we're here mainly to talk about Don's most recent book, The Bush, Travels in the Heart of Australia, which in May this year won both the Douglas Stewart Prize for Nonfiction and Book of the Year Award at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Australian author Roger MacDonald says, nothing Don Watson has written quite matches the wonders of the bush. Tom Keneally has added his own distinguished voice to the universal acclaim by describing the bush as a great succulent magic pudding of a book. So to talk about his own everlasting pudding, would you please welcome Don Watson. Thank you. Before we get lost in the bush, can we just talk about Paul Keating for a minute? <laughs> and that's one of the most spectacular political fallings out in recent memory. It's the loss of a great friendship, first and foremost, though, isn't it? Yep, it is. Yep. It didn't feel spectacular at the time. Um, something other than spectacular, really. But uh, these things happen. I once said to um, Bill Kelty, it's a funny thing about Paul, whenever he, this is when we were still friends, all his enemies seem to have once been his best friends. And Bill didn't say anything for about another. We were driving at the time. He didn't say anything for a couple of minutes. And then he said, same with me. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, they're of a, a kind of caste which is, um, and politics does then, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. I don't have many fallings out. We just sort of drift apart. But um, no, this was pretty savage. And uh, I mean, it, it's sort of haunting, I think. Um, I know why he feels the way he does. Why so? Um, well, someone else said to me once, <clears throat> pardon me, if a person feels betrayed, well, then he is betrayed. And Paul feels betrayed, and so he is. Um, but it doesn't necessarily follow that I feel as if I have betrayed him, but um, it's, um, it's just one of those things that really can't be undone. Um, in retrospect, should have you come out and actually claimed ownership of the Redfern speech? Well, you see, the, the, the first problem was not that, you know. The, the falling out was over the book. He, he just hated the way I wrote the book. Now, that's a long story, and if you wanted an explanation for that, buy the most recent edition, which has an afterward written, which I try and explain why the book is written the way it is and, and guess at why Paul feels the way he does. Now, the second... We kept it quiet, our falling out, basically. We kept it private and then in a kind of a really idiotic sequence of events it was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald that I had claimed authorship 
of the Redfern speech. Well, I, actually, I've done this already today, earlier this morning. I hope you weren't there as well. Um, you know, what you do when you write a speech is you, you really present advice like any other advisor in, in sentences, in a formal literary form, if you like. And you hope that he'll use as much of that speech as just to, because it means you're right. Now, if you, if you followed the principle that the person who writes these things remains the author of it, well, then economists who advise Paul to raise interest rates or whatever would have to take responsibility for the recession. Now, the thing is about advice is it's given in good faith and politicians own the advice when they decide to use it. And I think it's no different with the speech. As you write a speech and you hope, because you want to be vindicated, you know, that if, if they do choose, do choose to use the whole lot, well, then you think, oh, I did it right there. And, and in the case of the Redfern speech, that's exactly what happened. So I've always taken the view that I know I've been on panels with Graham Freudenberg, we agree, you know, furiously on this, that whoever writes the speech disappears from view after that. It's not so different to film writers who are, of course, the most unknown people on earth. Um, but you, naturally, he owns it because he wears the consequences and he decides which bits of it he'll use. And um, so that's never been a problem. But the, it was really the way it was reported in the Herald. Um, and I was probably a bit careless with the way I talked because I was, I was actually sitting outside a country hospital where I'd been driving for three hours to see my mother who'd been admitted and I was in a rather tense state and uh, I was irritated by the journalist ringing me at that time, not that he was to know, but you know how you get irritated. And I might have just been a little bit casual and thought, see I think if it had been a gallery journalist they wouldn't have done it. Mm. Keating said you have the inclinations of a fruit, back. fruit, fruit bat, sorry, uh, and you always head back to the darkness to feed. Um, <laughs> did, yeah. Which shows how much he understands about nature, I should say. But, um, <laughs> but not one of the great observers of fruit bats. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it actually takes us to the bush because there is a very dark side to the bush which we'll, we'll come to. And there's a lot of different ways to come at this book. And this is an exquisite book. Probably one of the must-reads, I would say, for the year. We can enter this book through history and culture and geography and colour and smell, light, the perils of the bush. But I'd like to start by um, talking about that wonderful image. Because you grew up, I mean, you, you were born in Gippsland and you grew up in Gippsland and you're of that country. And there's this wonderful image of your maternal grandmother wielding a broom with grim purpose on the back veranda of your family property in Gippsland. What did the back veranda mean to her and what was wrong with the front veranda? Well, it doesn't seem important, <clears throat> but it, um, country people always lived out the back of the house. You know, you, 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 only strangers would be silly enough. City people would come to the front of the house. The front door of most country houses in my experience were never opened, you went round the back. You had to brave the dogs, and I suppose that really was the thing. If the dogs knew you, they'd let you past. But, um, so she swept the back veranda, and the, it says a lot of things. I mean, those, I mean, she was pioneering stock, and 
my mother inherited the same habits and I have to stop myself doing the same thing, you know, worrying about how much hash there is on the floor in a sweeping sweep. That, <laughs> and, and muttering to yourself, picking up things, that's all I bloody do is pick up things, pick up things. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, well, my mother wouldn't have said bloody, but um, um, yeah, that sort of habit, which I think comes from, you know, trying to establish some kind of civilised um, society in a, in a wild landscape. And I think she, the, the back veranda and the steps from it were the ramparts of her civilization. And know, it was beyond. The, fr the frontier to Exactly, the down bush. below, yeah. So there were those gum leaves that kept blowing in. So I tried, I, I tried to, I don't know how I managed to get to this point, but I thought if I could start this book with a gum leaf, it wasn't a bad, it was probably a good place to start. And I don't know whether many of you have swept gum leaves, but you'll know there's always one that's turned over and it won't move. You, you have to flick it. Um, and you bang it, you know, which, and she would. And I'm sure she was thinking of her husband most times she was banging it. And so it worked quite well to sort of go into that, why is a gum leaf shaped the way it is? And of course it's shaped that way so it'll fly in the air, fly through and, and spread fire. You know, so it, it, it just sort of opened out into... She kept the meat safe. Yeah, the, the meat safe was always there with the blowflies around it and um, the fly tox on top of it. Um, <laughs> there was a <laughs> hell of a lot of, of fly spray in the air in her place. So there were, uh, it wasn't hard, you know, how smells just stay with you forever. And once I started writing about that back veranda, I could, I could smell the fly tox, I could smell the meat, sometimes a trout we'd caught out of the creek which have a very distinctive smell. Smell of boiling water with which she wash, washed the veranda every, every week um, out of the copper. So, I mean, this is all gets a bit, you know, kind of, you know, historico-tabloid. But, um, you know, you've got to start somewhere. And she was superstitious too. No, no crossed knives and forks at the table. And phenomenally superstitious. Um, yes. I mean, the, it's funny, you'll, you'll know that you come by these sorts of snippets of information by accident, but I hadn't realised, but she'd always said that if you had, um, why can't I think of it, um, that purple flower, what's it called, long drooping thing? No, not wisterium. Um, no, not chakaranda, no, no. <laughs> lilac, lilac. Lilac. Um, um, <laughs> If you had lilac in the house, you know, it, 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 you were likely to bring on a death. <laughs> now, my, it was bad luck. So my father's father was given three months to live in 1952, and he, he beat it by a month. He died within two months in the sheepyard. And my, this grandmother, who was my mother's mother, came over and saw the lilac in the house and said it was the lilac that had killed him. <laughs> It was his heart that had killed him. <laughs> it was buggered. And um, so that's the sort of superstition which is, was typical of her. She hated, you know, she lived in nature, but she hated it, you know. She, it drove her mad. It was, uh, you know, she's frightened of lightning. She's frightened of... Snakes. Snakes, everything. Oh, everyone's you know. frightened of snakes. And they, I think that, you know, that's, it, it's quite interesting. That I think a lot of people who live in... I mean, that goes back to her sweeping the veranda. I mean, nature was raw and horrible. I mean, she was really carrying out 
Freud's dictum, which is that, you know, this is a con we are in a contest with nature, I mean, it is our major enemy, mm. um, including, of course, our own natures. So. Uh, yes, well, we'll come to that. But did you actually grow up thinking that, that those who lived in the country lived a more useful um, and vigorous life and those in the city didn't? That they were weaker and more sort of callow? Well, if I'd bought, if I'd bought the, to the extent that I bought the, the ideology, yes, that's certainly how country people thought. I mean, even those who were, who just sort of sat on their verandas all day and did nothing, reckoned <laughs> city people were bludgers, you know, and, um, <laughs> and selling a, a few cans of highly subsidised milk each week. And, um, bloody bludging bastards! <laughs> Wouldn't, you know, it's very odd and, and, and useless people, useless people, city people. I mean, they still tell me that when I go there, you know, uh, they don't, don't do anything. We're the producers, we're the primary producers. So you say, well, you made that tractor yourself, did you? Out of, what? <laughs> out of binder twine and gum twigs or um, you... Um, you know, you, you concocted that penicillin, you put up the teats of your cows every morning, is that, you made that out the back, did you, out of something? Out of yoghurt or something? I don't know. <laughs> they really will have you believe that, you know, that everyone else is just sort of bludging off their labour. And it's, um, it's a very peculiar position. And it's you still... actually say that that's the, the primary producer is, is, in a way, harks back to the time of Genesis, he's kind of the yeah. original man. Yes, and I think, although we weren't, you know, my father would quote bits of the Old Testament, but I, I think that a lot of people had inherited that sort of a rather primitive Old Testament view that, you were, that subduing the earth was, the, was what you were meant to do. And, of course, there's had catastrophic effects on the earth. <laughs> the, uh, um, and I think rural people still tend to believe that this is the proper occupation for men and women, um, subduing the earth um, and winning some kind of living from it. And, and the, the, the central contradiction in our, in this book at least, and I think in our relationship with the bush, is the, is the one between the bush providing, a, making honest men and women into productive men and women, and, and it has a sort of cleansing, redemptive effect on people to work in these, in, 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 with nature. And many of them did, and it became the national ideology in a way. Um, but it was exactly these um, small farmers, freehold small farmers, given land with the instruction to improve it, which meant clear it, wipe out what's there, that leaves us with this, this bind we're in, that, that the national ideology is um, that we should subdue the earth and get a living out of it. That's the sort of Barnaby Joyce position, if you like. I'm sorry to mention Barnaby's name, really, but <laughs> he always comes up. Um, he should be ignored, but... Um, and against that is the fact that we've made a large part of the land unproductive. Um, we've done a appalling things to it. Even as we claim to love it, we're doing... We both abuse it and know very little about it and are not much bothered to find out. So and that's the fork in our road, I think. So let's just take one step back here for a second. When we talk about the bush, what are we actually 
talking about? Are we talking about scrub or forest or hill or plain or small holding, large holding, savannah, grassland? What is the bush? Well, that's where the that's really where the the problem arises because, well, to go back another step, we didn't live in the bush. I mean, some of the bush was still there when we were on the, our little 140 acres. But to say we lived in the bush was to suggest that we were in this regressive state. I mean, you, you lived on the land. You lived in the country, on the land, and, and to be a small holder, an independent small proprietor, that was, you couldn't hope for more. Um, but now everyone lives in the bush if they live outside, you know, the last suburb. And um, I heard Ian Sinclair describe himself as a bushy at a meeting in the Murray-Darling Basin recently. I thought, well, if Ian Sinclair's a bushy, what the hell am I, you know? Um, uh, bushy. But a, bush, a bushman in the 19... or a bush person in the 1950s and 60s was, a, was someone still living in a relatively primitive state. Um, now, and what a bush person is, what the bush is, is a, we don't really know. I mean, to live in South Gippsland where I was, 45 inches of rain, hilly, you know, all that deep soil, is about, you know, you couldn't get further from that than just simply going to the Mallee, which is, you know, 200 miles away. 250 miles away, and a very different life. I mean, it's a very different life to be in flat country as opposed to hill country. Um, I don't know, I don't want to be rude about the Dutch, but I think living in a flat land probably deprives you of many opportunities for humour. Um, <laughs> because if where we were, I mean, you had to chock everything, you know, and if you fail to chock it, you know, you'd end up in the watercourse. And um, everything from your tractor to a pumpkin or something, and they just roll, everything rolls all the time. So, <laughs> and people laugh like drains about, oh, it got out of control and ended up in the dam, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, or tipped over or whatever. Whereas if it's on the flat country, you're always pushing it or it's just sitting there stationary. <laughs> so I think it produces a very different mind. You know. <laughs> but so does... So does what you're doing with the bush. If you're, if you're walking along behind a bunch of jerseys, Frisians these days, horrible things, um, up and down the sides of a hill, that's very different to lumping wheat, you know, on a baking plain. And, um, and it's very different, you know, if you're a pastoralist, you know, with, where you measure your land in square miles, not in acres or hectares, then your whole perspective is very different. He's um, talking about jerseys, you actually described a good jersey as looking like Audrey Hepburn. Uh, it's showing my age, really, but... Um, yeah, well, Jersey's are very pretty little cows. And um, the Frisians are just these great, tumid, you know, industrial brutes, I think. Um, but I read, a, a, friends enough, a, they did a, a, a scientific analysis of America, US dairy herds, and they, they figured that if you took if you swapped all the Holsteins or Frisians for jerseys, you would, it would be the equivalent of taking nearly a million cars off the road. Um, because Frisians just produce so much gas and other. It was never safe to walk behind a Frisian. <laughs> Whereas jerseys were very demure. <laughs> hardly lifted their tails, really. <laughs> just enough. 
Don, I just want to read, some, read a passage of this book. You say the Australian bush is both real and imaginary, real in that it grows in various unmistakable bush-like ways and dies, rots, burns and grows into the bush again, real in harbouring life, imaginary in that among the, the life it harbours is the life of the Australian mind. It is by many accounts the source of the nation's idea of itself. The bush is everything from a gum tree to any of the creatures that live in it or shelter beneath it and it is the womb and inspiration of the national character. It is the smell of eucalyptus leaves, long shards of bark waiting for a fire, the din of galahs, the cawing of crows, and invincible silence. It is the blue horizon, the ute trailing a cloud of dust, the silo, the sale yard, the drover's wife. It is an uneducated cow cocky in a private school lad with a school degree. It is each dawn heralded by the insane laughter of a kookaburra, or the warble of a magpie, and the inspiration for literature, philosophy, and art. The bush is a social construct as well as an ecological one. As much as the things that grow and live there, we define it by the people who inhabit it. So mm. what has the, I mean, for, let's look at what we've done to the bush and what the bush has done to us. Can we take the first part of that? Yeah. Give us the sweep and the horror and the depth of what we actually did to this land and, and actually how we, we might lament that consciously or unconsciously, and how that informs us as a nation? God, that's a big question. Um, well, um, that's a huge question. I don't have the figures to hand, but if you, you know... Well, let's just start with what did we do to the bush? Yeah, well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. If I, in, in microcosm, where my family came from, from it was a, a mountain ash forest. Um, which um, Tom Griffiths has written about in splendid detail. If you want to really know what a mountain ash forest is like, magnificent forest, tallest hardwoods, biggest hardwoods in the world, layers of spectacular forest down to the marvellous tree fern gullies and right on the floor of the lyrebirds, if you like, and God knows how many other things. And then that was completely wiped away um, in the Streslecki Ranges. There were, there were a few gullies had been left and lasted into the 1930s and the Maryvale paper, paper mill was opened and they sat upon these straightened farmers and said, we'll take those mountain ash in your gullies and of course they needed the money and um, so they went as well. And they, one of the things I mentioned there is that my mother used to say that, you know, you could sit on the veranda in her family house and hear the lyrebird in the, the neighbour's gully and... Once they'd been through, then you never heard it again. Now you have to, without getting too maudlin about it, you have to think of that process over and over and over again across the landscape. Um, now, no one knows how many species were lost, flora and fauna, in the destruction of this forest. Now, at the same time, out of that came a, a whole... Um, pioneering culture, people made good lives. Within 10 or 15 years of their arriving there, they were, you know, growing raspberries, they had a little cooperative butter factory, they had a school team, all sorts of um, definitive things had happened. I mean, you don't have to go to South Gippsland, of course, if you're here, you just go to the big scrub and see what that 
those closer settlement acts meant for this extraordinary forest out the back here. I mean, I think it's, there's a, seemed to be a bit of a dispute between whether 2% or 1.5% of it remained, or was it even less than that? Now, what's sort of horrible about this is that this is not the destruction of timber workers. It's not the, this was just the destruction of people setting upon the bush to make lives for themselves out of, out of um, whatever they could find beneath it. It was really all that, all those closer settlement acts, the idea of creating an Australian yeomanry, giving all these people the chance to become independent and not become sort of working class radicals, was phenomenally destructive. That's where most of the destruction occurred. At the very point at which we created our ideal citizens, if you know what I mean, our citizens of, of um, firm moral principle and great physical vigour. Um, so that's the contradiction we face. And I think I, one of the things I was trying to do in this book is to sort of unravel the mythology, I mean, get underneath it. I mean, we, we live by these rituals of, of ideology. I mean, we've heard a lot of it. It's a bit like Team Australia, you know. You, that's the most recent example of this, this tendency. Um, it's gone. Now, we, don't have, we don't have Team Australia. I don't know whether you've noticed it hasn't been mentioned. Um, <laughs> But, you, but underneath that is actually a problem for us because I, I think that you can't do that without carrying some weight of remorse. And you find that very much in the diaries and memoirs of women. So a sort of sub-thesis in this book is that women actually carry both strands. Men find it very hard, as we, most women here will tell you, to carry two thoughts at once, or two sensations at once. You know, they all say they only want one thing. Well, it's a bit like that. They, um, but, so a man's diary would begin um, Wednesday 7th of August or something, and it'll say, day fine, grubbing, killed one black snake. And then there'll be the next day, and, the ne and it'll probably go for about five days. And then you go, oh, I can't be bugged keeping this diary. <laughs> and the grandchildren find this sheaf of paper and put it in the library, and it gets catalogued, and you go to it very excited, and you pull it out, and there's one sheet of paper saying, day fine grubbing, for five days in a row. Women, however, will describe what's being lost over and over again. So what we know about what the, the sounds of these forests or... Um, planes or whatever, you'll find very more often than not in the women's diaries and memoirs. And what also we know about the feelings that these places evoked, you find in these diaries. Um, the rest of it is up to your imagination. You have to go and stand there yourself and get a feel for it. But uh, that, that's a major source of our understanding of what is lost uh, in an unscientific way. We get through these things. I have this feeling that you can't cut down, you know, you know how we're all tree huggers now and we hate the thought of cutting, and it's like committing a murder to cut down any tree more than you know, a foot in diameter. Well, I, I think people have always had a problem with trees, you know, one way or another. You just can't do it. it uh, they mean a lot to us. Can I just enlarge on what you just mentioned about, about men and their... Um, their circumspection, if you like. You say, it could, you write that it could be that while the man of the bush was just as inclined to express his thoughts as anybody else, not many entered his head. 
or, or those that did were not well formed or perhaps they were too complex for expression. Mm -hmm. So that goes to, and then conversely you describe when you write about perhaps the effect of the bush on the Australian feminine, female, you, you describe the bush as the innocent virgin, the fickle temptress, the irrational creature beyond the understanding of men. In a way, the bush shaped our ideas of masculinity and femininity, mm. didn't they? You know? mm. Can you speak to that? Well, I think it, I think it did. They, um, it's a bit hard to... I think there was a sort of terrible heist took place with the bush. I mean, if, if you wanted... The best writing about the bush towards the end of the 19th century was, I think, was from women. I'm, I'm thinking of people like Rosa Prade or Caroline Craig and these people, and Barbara Bainton and so on, but, but the, the, the national ideology became a male one through the bulletin, which was a men's magazine, really. Um, and then the war, the First World War, consolidated this view of the thing as a male business. Plus, it's a sort of Victorian ethos. So, you know, we were Victorians. The Bush people were Victorians before they were anything else, really, as the war demonstrated. Um, so, it's a pity that it went that way, because I think, um, and it was necessary for them to sort of leave. The, the Bush was sort of feminised. It was a kind of feminine notion that it was fickle and, you know, all those standard cliches, and not to be understood. And I suppose once... I'm, I'm sort of drawing a long bow here, but I suppose once you decide something can't be understood, it's very easy to decide it's not worth understanding. And I think that's what was really, in a way, happening. I think, you know, that... You see, well, I, I, I'm... I wouldn't be saying, how could you say these people you know, were terrible for what they did to the bush? But I think it's legitimate to say, why didn't you leave a bit? You know, what was going on there? Why, why, why did you keep going and going until it was all gone? There's a description by a, um, a closer settler, a, a woman in southwest Western Australia around 1910 or something, and she describes a scene of, I don't know whether any of you know brown baronia, it's this, this beautiful plant. It has a, it's a very fickle plant. It, it's perfectly good one night and the next morning it's dead. And it's a bit like a hen, you know, they just suddenly keel over. But it has, a, you know, this exquisite um, fragrance. And she says, as far as the eye could see, there is this brown baronia and growing among um, the grass trees. Now, but she says, it's all gone now, of course. And you want to say, well, why is it all... Why didn't you leave a bit of it? Because, I mean, it'll never be... You'll never see this ever again. And it, there's some strange line that they kept crossing, which was to take it all. And, and we're still doing it. I mean, people are still clearing the brigalow and the rest. But there's one theory about that. It's really is that if you give a person an axe, particularly a bloke, he'll chop something with it. And if you give him a 500-horsepower bulldozer with an 80-foot blade, he'll get out and use it. Um, that is a thought that goes absolutely nowhere, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me take up a, a thought here that... Um, the bush just 
occupies this central place in our national character and, in fact, you perpetuate it by writing this book. <laughs> but for 85% of the population or more, we actually don't live in the bush. We, we hug the coast and live in cities. And, so, and for all those who have the migrant experience from Asia, the Middle East, I mean, what could the bush possibly mean to them? And why does this idea persist? I don't know, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, it's, a, it's a big mystery. We've been a, a most urbanised country for a, more than a century. Um, we cling to the coast. Um, but we understand ourselves somehow as being made by the bush. I don't know whether it'll last for another generation or two, but the, it seems to show no signs of dying out. I, when I was working in Keating's office, he, um, you remember he mentioned the idea of taking the Union Jack off the flag, which created paroxysms of horror around the country. Um, but it was a great boon to primary school teachers, we discovered, because they sent in to the Prime Minister's office large numbers of flag designs done by their kids <laughs> as a way of making them think about the country. Well, almost without exception, they were images of the bush, gum trees, Uluru, desert landscapes, not a building to be seen, not a person apart from two which had Bob Hawke in them. Um, um, uh, one standing on the top of Uluru and the other uh, in a gum tree, which was sort of, um, which we displayed prominently, as you could imagine. And um, uh, Paul didn't appear in any of them in any shape or form. Um, so, I mean, it does seem a very strange thing that we that we we think about ourselves are somehow physically defined, that is defined by nature, about which we know very, very little. Ask the average person in the street or ask the person who lives in the bush to name five eucalypts or, you know, let alone a few little things living under the grass, and they wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, so I, I don't know. And I often think that it actually probably drags us back a little bit, you know. We do know that the future, broadly defined, belongs with the cities. And um, that's how we're going to live and that's where it's all going to be worked out. So it does leave us in a, with one foot in a sort of regressive state. And I think we still go on imagining that really the country is the, the prime mover of the economy, which it's not anymore by any stretch of the imagination. Um, yet but I suppose it's not uncommon for countries to live in a sort of mythical world, but we seem to live in one perhaps more than others. Will you compare, for example, to Australia to America, where there's a number of platforms or planks to their national character or what seems to inform their sense of who they are? Yeah. I mean, they, they, um, they have their frontier leg legend, which is comprehensively ignored in Silicon Valley and New York and other places which are defining the future. Um, but here we never get very far away from it without taking a step back and saying, well, you know, no, this is us. This is us. I mean, the fact that John Howard got around in a sort of hat which belonged somewhere west of the Darling um, um, <laughs> is pretty astonishing, really. I mean, he did have a pair of big runners on to sort of show he was urban as well, but it was really <laughs> this 
this weird broad hat, which was, um, and people seemed to think, well, that's okay, but it was really like, I couldn't help thinking of Barry McKenzie when I saw it. <laughs> um, sort of miniature. And, um, <laughs> You were, you grew up in the bush, but you were 20 before you actually came to understand what the bush meant or before the bush claimed you. And I think I'm right in saying that it was actually birdsong that perhaps took you to certainly the kookaburra, the cry of the kookaburra, it's a lovely description of, it, 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 it reminds us of the vanished bush and that, that when you hear the kookaburra, you think all is well with the world. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, no, I mean, that was the funny thing. I mean, I, I grew up where there were still the huge stumps with the, with the, um, the notches where the boards had gone for them to be cut down, and there were still, there were still remnants of, um, you know, hazel and musk in the, you know, the lower stories of the bush, and they were still around and the, the ringbark trees, which is like all of Australia was well into the 50s. Wherever you drove, there were ringbark trees. Um, God knows what that does to a psyche, you know. I don't know. But to really discover the bush, you had to go in deep into the, 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 the ranges and camp and get a sense of what it really was like. That's the whole thing. I mean, we, most of us have never seen the bush as it actually is. And even in those ranges, you know, there were always mining shafts and you don't know how much it moved. I mean, one CSIRO scientist said to me, if you want a definition of the bush, it's matter moving about. That's really what it is. And since Europeans came, it's moved about at a much greater rate. Um, and because we disturbed the soils and they washed away and they took scrub which didn't grow there. If you look at an explorer diary and then go and look at the place that is described in the diary, you'll find something entirely different. There's a place in East Gippsland called Providence Ponds. Now, it's, obvious, it's called Providence Ponds because when he rode through it, it was this beautiful red gum grassland with grass up to the girths of the horses and, and he thought, Providence has smiled on me. You go there now, it's scrub. It's just rubbish. Um, now, that's generally happened right across the landscape. Um, you know, I, I think if you drove the major highways of Australia, you know, probably the most familiar scene I think of is when you go down a bit of a dip in the highway and there's a sign saying Sheepwash Creek or some other kind of creek which tells you that they used to wash sheep in it and was probably full of arsenic for 40 years. But, uh, but that, then there will be a sort of bare um, rise eroded creek, not a reed or anything inside. Now, you know that that was an entirely different scene before Europeans, um, that there would have been reeds. The water would have lain there quietly. It, it would have been boggy, dried out occasionally, but always come back. Well, that's over and over and over again, repeated a million times, is what happened to the landscape. And we've never seen it as bush. Now, the good news is that there are ways, if you listen to Peter Andrews and others, there are ways to repair it, to regenerate it. All that is lacking is the will and probably the capital. But Peter will tell you that it's not just capital. You can actually, don't need to be Jerry Harvey to do it. He reckons you can do it. But all you've got to do is look at the landscape and watch how the water works in the landscape and then and you can fix it. And was that a motivation for the book? 
for this book, that we need a new compact or a philosophy or a guiding narrative, a new narrative, that all the things that have held us back about this central idea of the bush need to be revisited? No, it wasn't a motivation, but I, but I, I found enough examples of really, um, really marvellous things that people are doing in the bush that, um, that left me with a, a, a flicker or two of optimism. That it, you know, and the knowledge that it can be fixed if people, you know, but we'd have to make up our minds we're going to do it. And to do that, you've got to, there's a whole lot of things you have to do. Like most people, the worst thing is that the, the, uh, the people who, who need to regenerate the land don't have the capital to do it. You know, that they're the people who are crippled by debt or by exhaustion of one kind or another. And how we fix that would require an act of um, universal imagination that we're not showing much signs of having at the moment. You know, you would have to really decide we're going to... If this bush means so much to us, well, then we're going to actually do something about it. I don't know whether we will. And probably as the primary producers count for less um, in the overall scheme of the GDP, then there'll be less and less of an incentive. And you've just left the bush yourself. I mean, you were living in... Mount Macedon, and you've returned to the city. Yeah. Um, yes, I have. You abandoned the bush, or the bush abandoned you, or what, why did that Something happen? happened. Something happened. Um, that's another drama, you see. That's the thing. There's a big drama about the primary producing bush, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, west of the divide. And then there's the drama along the seaboards, which is of what the hell do we do living in this bush that burns, you know? I mean, I lived effectively in a chimney for seven years. Uh, around February, you know, it was scary. And um, there were heaps of people living there. And of course, now you have a bush. But like the Black Saturday fires in Victoria were nowhere near as devastating as fires as the 1939 fires, but they killed many more people because there are many more people living in these vulnerable areas and that's going to get worse and worse. People now die in suburbs, you know, fringe suburbs. And Don, um, I'm being wound up. I've, I've actually been wound up and I'm sorry we haven't had time for questions. We are over deadline but would you please join me in thanking Don Watson. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.